Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, he broke barriers four years ago, becoming the first openly gay person to win a statewide election. Now, Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara is up for re-election, and he's got a lot of questions to answer. Questions around ethical lapses, broken promises, and being too cozy with the insurance industry that he regulates. And yet... Marisa, he's also been endorsed for re-election by top Democrats, including Governor Gavin Newsom. He's going to join us uh, to talk about his first term as California's insurance watchdog and why he deserves a second one. Should be interesting. Should be interesting. Also interesting and kind of unprecedented this week, uh, the Supreme Court, a draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked and published by Politico. And man, everything just got turned upside down. Uh, obviously, big ramifications potentially for women, of course, especially in states that are going to uh, re- restrict even further or ban abortion. But here or in California, criminalize it. we're criminalizing laws it. already yeah. as of Thursday being introduced to essentially say that you can charge a woman with murder. From the moment of conception. Yeah, and you've got all these poison pill basically like ready to go as soon as this uh, right. comes down. So big implications for California, both yeah. because we will be sort of a potentially a sanctuary for women, but also politically. Yeah. I mean, first, I think on the logistics, this is something the state has been preparing for, um, understanding that this case, well, several cases actually were coming before SCOTUS. And after the oral arguments in the fall, where it became pretty clear that this was probably going to be the, the makeup, at least five justices voting uh, to either gut or overturn, as we're seeing now, Wade. Um, you know, the, the state set up this abortion council, the future of abortion. They've been doing a lot um, to sort of figure out what is what is it that California needs to sort of prepare? How can we handle this? Um, we're, you know, if you talk to Jody Hicks, head of Planned Parenthood here in California, she's saying that there's already big waits at clinics just because of what had gone into effect in places like Texas. Um, and so I think there's a couple of questions here, Scott. It's, it's the actual ability to provide these you know, procedures, like will there be enough clinics and staff? And then there's obviously how to assist uh, women and people in other states who do want to leave um, and access their you know, reproductive services. Yeah, and I think they're anticipating, what, a 3,000% increase in in the number of uh, women seeking services. And it's already hard in a lot of parts of California to find a provider. If you live in the rural parts of the state, Katie Orr, our former colleague, did some reporting on that. So there's all of that. And I think we may get some more indication of how much this is going to cost next week when the governor releases his uh, revised budget. But then politically, of course, uh, you know, we have some Republicans running for statewide office like Lon He Chen, the controller, running for that race. Um, the governor running against Brian Daly, who is pro, pro-life. Um, you know, what is that? What effect is all this going to have on that? Democrats are hoping, of course, that it is going to uh, really motivate and mobilize voters who have been kind of demoralized. Right. And I think, I mean, this is really... 
not to take the sort of legitimate, just potentially devastating effects, uh, you know, of this decision if it stands, but politically, there's so many open questions, too. And, you know, one thing we saw this week was Governor Gavin Newsom and other state Democrats uh, rushed to say they are going to put an amendment on the ballot for this fall that would change the Constitution to enshrine this right. I mean, my question is, what does that look like? Is it does it stop at abortion? Does it include other potential privacy rights like gay marriage, contraception access? Um, And then Politically, what does that do? Does that is that a big motivator, both here and across the country for Democrats, for young people? I mean, that's a a, a part of the Democratic base that has really been disappointed, I think, by Biden, if you look at polling. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of questions. But on the other hand, we've seen Republicans for decades lead up to this point, really use it as an organizing tool. So I think the politics are really up in the air still. They are. And then, of course, we've got some competitive congressional races in California where you have like up to three, maybe four. Republicans who could be vulnerable. You can be sure that uh, the DCCC and the candidates in those races are going to really elevate uh, the issue of abortion rights. So a lot of unknowns. And, you know, we should say just for the, you know, for the record, it was a draft opinion. It's uh, it could change in one way or another. Uh, There were we've read stories about, you know, potentially uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who was not a part of that majority in the draft. Maybe trying to pull, you know, someone like uh, Kavanaugh over to the other side, maybe uphold the Mississippi law, but not strike down Roe v. Wade. So, you know, we'll know soon, very soon. uh, But either way, it's already had a huge effect. It's been a political uh, earthquake and, you know, uh, earthquake in the lives of so many women and their families who have been relying on this law and this right for uh, 50 years or so. Yeah. And before we go to a break, Scott, um, tell us, I know there's been some bills that came out of that Future of Abortion Council a lot. Of, I think over a dozen that they're trying to get through. Uh, one in particular, though, by Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, AB 1666, has been getting a lot of attention. Is that not? Yeah, and a- 1666 is actually from Rebecca uh, Bauer-Cahan. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. That one was supposed to be voted on today and presumably passed in the Assembly, but they pulled it back because they wanted to make it an urgency clause. And it what would, would ba- that do? It so? would... It would um, basically make these civil lawsuits against women who come to California or anyone who helps them come to California to get an abortion. It would prevent any kind of civil uh, liability or trial, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking at, judgments against judgments them. Against so, them. Uh, But they wanted it to take effect immediately. So they uh, now uh, it's going to have as an urgency clause. They're going to bring it up next week, but it picked up 26 new sponsors wow. this week uh, yeah. since since that ruling came so out. A so a lot of legislation at the state level here and across the country that I think is going to be testing what happens after whatever the decision comes yeah, down. Yeah, and you mentioned Buffy Wick. She has a bill, too, that would... Um, get rid of a law that's on the books now that would require coroners to do investigations when there's a stillbirth or what could have been a self-induced abortion. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that just haven't really been thought about, but now lawmakers and women uh, are going to have to. Yeah. All right. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by State Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is someone who represented parts of Los Angeles in the state assembly and Senate before getting elected state insurance commissioner in 2018. Now, Ricardo Lara is running for re-election, and this time he's being challenged by a member of his own Democratic Party. Ricardo Lara, welcome to The Breakdown. It's great to be with you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, good to see you. You know, we always like to begin uh, these conversations. At the beginning, yeah, with your early life. Uh, We know that your parents (laughs) uh, were Mexican immigrants. Your dad was smuggled across the border at the age of 19. I think he swam across the river with the help of a coyote. Uh, Talk about your parents. Uh, You know, what were they like? What did you what stories did you hear as a kid about their coming to this country? Well, first and foremost, I mean, you know, the, the, the stories were endless, right? Like from we didn't come here so that you can be slackers. We didn't sacrifice our lives so that you you could drop off from school or whatever. So that was always it was always referenced as a as a threat, right? Like we didn't do this so that our kids could be slackers. We want them to be somebody someday. And um, and something that what always stuck to me was like, well, I have to. I have to do better. I have to achieve. I, had, I always grew up with the sense of like responsibility to to make sure that I lived up to to that sacrifice that they made. But you know, obviously, my dad's story was one that uh, has been so moving, and I get so many calls from people when they hear it or read about it. But it's Mother's Day, you know, it's almost Mother's Day, and so I got to give a shout out to my mom. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've I've become now as a gay man realize that I'm becoming my mom every day. <laughs> Like I am my mother. What did uh, what did you get from so, her? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what didn't I get from her? I mean, you know, my mom is just this feisty uh, Mexican Latina mom who's such a hard worker, um, who's very passionate about issues and things, and not afraid to give you her opinion. And I just realized that I, I have her mannerisms now, and I and I start saying things that she says in Spanish. Um, and, you know, just things that happen and she's always kind of has these one-liners for everything in Spanish. And that before I had, well, as a kid, I'm like, can, did you, can you give us an example? Yeah. Like is it radio one-liner? safe? <laughs> yeah. I, we yeah, have to believe yeah. this. Like, you know, I, I was having a bad day the other day and, and she says, she's like, mijo, recuerda, uh, estoy tan acostumbrado a lo, a lo amargo que lo dulce me empalaga. 
which means I'm so used to bitterness that sweet actually tastes bad in my mouth, right? <laughs> and it's like, just keep going. And it's those little things that now I tell my staff or I'll tell friends and I'm like, oh God, I'm becoming Dolores Lara. <laughs> or my eyes. Well, I know, um, you know, she did domestic work labor and was often mistreated by people she worked with. I think your dad, after doing farm work, ended up in a factory. In L.A., yeah. And you talk about living in fear as a child that you might come home and they wouldn't be there, that they would be deported. Yeah. How did that impact kind of your outlook? And did they share that fear? Or was this something that you kind of internalized? Because I know you also were often navigating the American society for them. Absolutely. You know, I was the first in my family to learn English and be that connection to mainstream culture. But for us, it was just another, just as we had uh, earthquake drills, like we had drills about, okay, if, you know, if I can't pick you up from school, this is where you go. And then I, I remember it was around kind of sixth grade when my mom and dad had the conversation with us, like, hey, if we don't show up, or if one of us isn't here, make sure you call. I like I knew my dad's work phone number memorized. I knew my mom's work number by by heart as well. And say like, call us immediately if you know you see something that changes around the house. And it was their way of telling us if you, if we get deported, you know, it was during the time when the raids were happening in downtown in the factories. And so my mom worked as a seamstress in those in those areas, and it was. All that, you know, my, there was no, sometimes I, I often feel that my parents shared way too much mm. for kids, you know, uh, but this was their way of telling us, like, we have a plan for everything. Like, don't freak out. Well, they were be able, they were able to become citizens and get amnesty um, because yes. of, uh, you know, that was Ronald Reagan's doing Ronald in Reagan, the 1980s. Yes. And, you know, for some immigrant families, that kind of, they gravitated toward the Republican Party because of that. Did that, you know, happen at all with your parents? No, no. My parents, um, you know, although they were very appreciative of what President Reagan did, um, I think it was for my parents really um, the sense that the Democratic Party and my mom often kind of, you know, when I asked her, like, why do we become Democrats? My mom, well, first of all, she said Kennedy, 100 uh, percent. Two, she she felt that the party um respected immigrants and didn't make fun of she said they, they don't make fun of my accent they don't make fun that you know i'm a seamstress it was like a workers party mm-hmm. uh and and we were that de- we've been democrats ever since well and one then, of the th- oh. oh yeah i was just gonna say i mean it seems like you and honestly a lot of folks of your you know age in sacramento who are latino were really activated by proposition 187 this was the ballot measure that passed in california to deny public services to undocumented immigrants it was overturned it never got it went into effect but i think you were in college at the time and is that to you kind of the heart of your political activism that starting then it's a hundred percent Look, I was, I was obsessed with Saved by the Bell, and I thought I was. I didn't see myself as Slater. I saw myself as Zach, and I was like living my, you know, Bayside fantasy and going to college, you know, and and, and seeing 187 happen. It was really like in your face. Like, what do I do? Do I just pretend that I'm, you know, that this is not impacting me or that this isn't attacking my parents, or do I do something about it? And it was that political. Awakening that occurred that led me to this talk show with you guys today. This, you know, it's it's really was the force behind why I decided to get engaged in politics. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Ricardo Lara. He's California's insurance commissioner. He's seeking a second four-year term for the job this year. Um, you did run for the, you started to run or thought you were going to run for the assembly in 2008. Turned out the powers that be down in L.A. had another candidate in mind who went on to become assembly speaker, so that wasn't so bad. Uh, but you did run in 2010, ran for the assembly, and you championed some things like driver's licenses for some undocumented Californians. I, I'm assuming that based on what you've just been talking about, that was really very much in your mind when you uh, worked on bills like that. So many, you're right, Scott, and, and you're bringing me way back. Um, some, some, of the, some of those like closure moments that I've had in the legislature was one, you know, I, I said, one of the things I said was like, I don't want to just focus on immigration when I got to the assembly. And I remember telling my chief of staff, Erica, I just don't want to do this. I want to really learn. I want to learn infrastructure. I want to learn transportation, climate. I want to work on all these things. But, you know, one time she sat me down and said, Ricardo, every time you send me an angry text or an angry email about an article, it has to do with immigration. So let's stop pretending that we don't care and let's dive in. And that's what I did. And I realized that, you know, I was falling into my own kind of like, I don't want to be pigeonholed as the gay, progressive Democrat from L.A. And it's just going to work on immigration and education. But these issues are fundamental to our survival for my family and our community. And so I became really unapologetic about championing these issues, you know, reversing Prop 227, the English only law. And, and that to me was, was really emotional because I grew up as a Spanish speaker and I remember my mom being made fun of at the mall for not speaking English or me because you know people people still think I have an accent by the way I just some insurance commissioner the other day told me were you born in this country you have an accent I'm like no that's my LA accent you have a gay a gay accent <laughs> and my gay accent right <laughs> well, so yeah. yeah I do want to ask um on on that issue though how old were you when you came out and how did your first generation were they Catholic? I don't know. Uh, practicing. Yeah, yeah. How did your family react? I mean, clearly you're still very close to everybody, but was that a tough transition? You know, uh, I have to say it, it was. It took me, it took me, I would say, close to 12 years of off and on relationships with my father in particular. Mm -hmm. My mom, um, my mom understood and my mom, uh, like a good Scorpio Latina woman, her, mo her mode was into pro like protection mode. Right. Like, like I'm worried about you more than... Yes, yeah. exactly. And like, what are they saying about you? What's happening? Who's, who are you hanging out with? She started trying to control every aspect because she was scared of what I was going to do. And it was my dad who just completely at the beginning was just really angry. You know, he didn't understand. And, and then I was angry because he didn't understand. And, and it was... It, it got to the point, Marissa, where I think as I got older... I, I realized like, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight with him anymore. And I'm going to, I'm going to choose to love him. And I'm going to choose to understand that he comes from a different generation. And it's been so amazing. Like to the point where we make dad is the most awesome dude on the planet. And to be able to have him with me on the floor of the Senate, when I got sworn into the uh, Senate, my mom was a little pissed because she thought, you know, I'm team mom, but, um, to tell her, like, I want my dad with me. And then there was a moment where 
the, the, the lieutenant governor asked us to stand up and raise our right hand. And my dad got up to raise his right hand. I'm like, excuse me, sir. You're like, you um, can't take this, actually. Um. Right. This is mine. Uh, but I, I cherish that moment because that is who my dad is. Like, yeah. he is... He is the class clown. He's the one that's dancing at other fiestas. He's the one cracking the jokes. And I'm so glad that I chose to just, I, I chose to forgive for myself, but I think it was just much more important to really come to the realization that he did the best he could. And the one thing I that I told myself, he's always been there for you. Mm-hmm. No matter what, he may not understand what an American football game is. He might not understand that I needed you know, new reads for my clarinet or that I wanted my cheerleading sweater for my varsity cheerleading team. He didn't care. He was there and sacrificed so that I can have what I wanted. Well, you did make history becoming the first uh, openly gay person to win a statewide office. You ran for insurance commissioner in 2018. Why that job? I mean, you talked about your passion being some of these immigration issues. You worked on a lot of criminal justice, juvenile justice issues in the legislature. So why did you want to be insurance commissioner? So, Scott, it's really fascinating because it also has an immigration uh, connection to it. So uh, I did a bill in the legislature when Obamacare passed to, uh, where the federal government, I think, really fell short and really discriminated against undocumented immigrants to pay into the Affordable Care Act. Why wouldn't we want, we know immigrants tend to be younger, healthier, and they're working. This is the exact type of people that we need paying into the Affordable Care Act so that it becomes much more affordable for the rest of folks that actually need it. And so the bill, uh, in true California fashion, got out, bipartisan support, got signed, and I had been working with the Obama administration to to make this a reality because we needed a federal waiver to allow California to allow undocumented immigrants to pay. And obviously the election didn't go the way I wanted to. We already had briefed the uh, Hillary team as well. And it was, um, I was, I went to DC and they were, the Trump administration said, well, you know, if we even let this thing go, we're going to ask for individual names and addresses of the people that would qualify. And it was on that plane ride back that I said, no, I'm not only am going to, am I going to remove this work that I've been working on for almost a year and a half, but I'm going to run for insurance commissioner to make sure that we expand healthcare for our undocumented community and for refugees and other marginalized low-income communities. And that's why I decided to run for insurance commissioner. So you were elected in 2018 um, and you were running for re-election now. And I want to ask you, I mean, this is a race where we've seen a lot of the big newspapers, for example, endorse your opponent. And they cite some criticisms of you, particularly around taking financial contributions from the insurance industry. Um, I guess broadly, before we get into some of the details of that, like, what is your response generally to the criticism that you have not had consumer protection in mind, that you've been too cozy? Well, you know, the fact is, the the reality is, is that I've I've done some uh, really record-breaking things to not only protect consumers. For example, during the pandemic, uh, I forced insurance companies to return premiums back to drivers and small businesses. Now we've, uh, insurance companies have reimbursed close to $2 billion. I was the first insurance commissioner in the country, uh, and it's the largest amount that any other state has ever done to do this. We can, we've gone actually out to, uh, and secured very important protections for wildfire survivors. And, you know, it's, 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 it, and the work that we've been doing around climate, working with the UN um, uh, Sustainable Insurance uh, Collaborative to make sure that California leads and creates a climate insurance market is something that I'm very proud of and that 
no other state uh, in the union is doing. Well, that, that, and that's a really good pivot, which I appreciate. Uh, but, you know, coming back to Maurice's question, I mean, these editorials from the L.A. Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Mercury News are really scathing. And, you know, again, you promised when you ran in 2018 not to take money from the insurance industry. And then you, you know, turned around and didn't take, didn't take it from one or two, but like 50 plus, 56. And so what were you thinking, really? Well, you know, I have to say, first of all, uh, it was a mistake. And when I found out that, you know, that that money came into my campaign account, I quickly froze fundraising. I uh, fired my fundraiser. And I, you know, like I said, I stopped fundraising for a year and a half and really built in all these protocols to make sure that I didn't take any money that didn't reflect my values. Uh, and, and that was tough. And but it was a it was an accident. Why was and it I tough? Didn't... What was tough? The fact the criticism? No, it was tough because I had to, you know, re- figure out how did money, this money come in without us having it go through our, pro- like, catching it. And I realized that I didn't have the protocols in place to in, in this new position to be able to make sure that we followed up on individuals who might be connected to an insurance company or might be married to somebody. So I didn't have that. And, uh, and that was a, a tough lesson for me. But, you know, I'll tell you, after, after so much... Um, uh, reflection, I realized that I'm a better insurance commissioner. I'm a better public servant for that have happened because now I have the protocols in place. And I've all, all, and I've also know that, you know, I'm human. I make mistakes. And, uh, and I, I know that's not uh, popular for politicians to admit to, but it's who I am. And I'm a better person because of it, because now I have the protocols in place to make sure that that doesn't happen. Well, I appreciate a politician acknowledging mistake. That that in itself is rare. I wonder, um, you know, there's the taking of the money, but then there's a couple cases, I think at least four have been documented, where companies whose executives were part of those donations actually had decisions uh, that were made by administrative law judges in the insurance department overturned by the commissioner's office. I don't know if you directly intervened, but why do that? Um, and why, like, what does that tell you? What, what What is your response to voters who say that seems like the opposite of what we're trying to have in this position? Right. And, you know, and I, and I get that my opponent and his allies are making a lot of false claims about my record. The fact is that in 2016, the Department of Insurance under then Commissioner Jones issued a very uh, precedent setting decision known as the Shasta Lennon case. And I don't want to get into all the details, but the decision found that California insurance company illegally sold workers comp to small businesses. But because the Shasta Lennon is a precedent setting, future judgments must follow those terms. And so shortly after taking office, I stayed two proposed decisions at the recommendation of my department staff that didn't follow the Shasta Lennon case. And when I became aware of the political, you know, against the political donations, I took immediate action. I immediately recused myself from any of my decisions and uh, around this case. And the reason we did it was because we were afraid that small businesses were gonna lose their insurance uh, because of the, the, the decision. And that's something that we wanted to protect. But uh, again, you know, I siphoned myself off and, and made sure that didn't happen. I, I guess, uh, you know, what, what, what we're getting at and what these editorials were getting at, uh, and this isn't coming from your opponent, this is coming from the media, uh, is a pattern of things like this that, you know, they're kind of like, you can say, well, I didn't know, or I should have known, um, and I fixed it now. But there's also, you know, the case of your the house, the apartment in Sacramento, which you charged taxpayers for, uh, $14,000 plus, um, you know, and, I, and for travel expenses and other things. It just, it doesn't, 
I mean, it's the kind of thing, especially when people have a housing crisis. There's, you know, where a lot of people are struggling to find housing, and you're asking taxpayers to pay for something that really well, you should have paid for. Well, Scott, the fact is that I, what we did is, I, you know, I terminated that lease, but my thought was that I actually would save money, taxpayer, save taxpayer money, because the other case was, and I would have to stay in hotels which hotels were, have been much more costly. Why not move to Sacramento? I mean, you ran for the job, right? We often, right. in not just in politics, but apply for jobs that are not where we live. Right. And the thing was that I was, you know, we have multiple offices across the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I was working out of the uh, LA office and I was like, well, you know, if I'm, I'm allowed to keep this, the, the, the apartment, I'm actually going to save taxpayers money. Obviously, that was perceived the wrong way, and so we terminated the lease. Uh, but again, it was it was an it was an attempt to, to actually save money and not have to spend money on a hotel. Yeah. And and the thing is that I'm also the first uh, insurance commissioner from Southern California. So and never before have we had to to this travel back and forth. But you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. So as we said at the top, we only have like a minute or so left with you. Two Democrats in this race likely to head to a runoff in the fall with um, Mark Levine, who's challenging you. What's your elevator pitch to voters at this moment? Well, you know, my elevator pitch would be uh, I'm proud of the work that I've done to protect consumers and hold insurance companies accountable. We're doing some revolutionary work around regulations that are actually going to give consumers a reimbursement to harden their homes from fires and, and various other climactic changes. And so, uh, you know, really addressing the needs of Californians and, and really revolutionizing this, this position to, to be at the forefront of climate change, which is something I'm very proud of. And you got in a Twitter fight with Elon Musk. That might get you some votes. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, when a billionaire tr- throws a tantrum because uh, I'm not going to change the regulations to help billionaires, I guess he didn't like that. Yeah, there's a lot of things <laughs> You're about in good California company. You're actually like. in good company there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara, thank you so much for joining us. Happy Mother's Day to your mom and uh, have yes, a great weekend. You. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Be nice. I'm going to find you, yes. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey. 
It's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.